Hey everybody, welcome back to On Stage, Off Stage. I'm your host, George Sapio, and this is episode number 174, February of 2024. Our guest this month is Yekaterina Wagner. Yekaterina is a playwright and much more. She is an art critic and editor. She does amazingly wonderful things with words. We met last March, almost a year ago now, at a McDowell residency. And her work was some of the first that I picked up and started to read. And believe me, I was hooked. You're going to hear all about it. One of the first things I read when I was at McDowell was your play. Okay, How Not to Offend a Partisan. And I'm not sure what I expected, but I found it absolutely hilarious. Uh, a little confusing because there were things going on I didn't quite understand at first, but I also found it very probable. I didn't think it was, you know, uh, um, a dream or anything. To me, this sounded like humans, especially humans in government, <laughs> acting to the least of their abilities. So, yes, I know that it's a satire, but uh, and you had it produced at the Portland Playhouse Auditorium last June. So, yay, congratulations on that. Um, let's let's talk about where the play came from, how long it took you to write it, and what your if you have a revision process. So where did this play come from? Oh, it came up very unexpectedly. Uh, there was a political trial going on. And uh, I've seen a Facebook post by my friend who wrote, uh, do you all know that there's a dramedy unfolding in real time in court, uh, uh, just as we see uh, here now. Hmm. Uh, and so I got curious and I decided to check it out. Mm. And it is not uh, usually allowed to film or take photographs in Russian courts, but there were two journalists from independent media outlets which were not blocked uh, or at, at that time, right? But uh, they were still functioning. Uh, they were called Media Zona and Medusa, and they were uh, doing a kind of a live textual translation from the courtroom. So they tweeted or whatever they did, mm -hmm. uh, for, for whatever was going on. Um, in court. So there were almost literal trans transcripts. And they were indeed hilarious. Uh, because it this was is not, not... This is not typical, right? Usually courts don't allow live feeds or, or live recordings of the procedures, correct? Yes, but it was not a, a live recording. They were just texting on their phones. Okay. They, they didn't record. All right. Uh, the, they uh, they were just hearing and typing what they hear, and it went online almost immediately. And it was not a regular trial. It was a trial of, of uh, uh, very famous 
Russian politician and now our most famous political prisoner, mm. whose name is Alexei Navalny. Maybe you've heard about him from a documentary film that has won an Oscar not so long ago. Okay, I haven't uh, seen the film, but I do know his name and I do know that he has a reputation for angry criticism of the powers that be, which is, I assume, he's now in jail, correct? Yes, and he was recently sentenced to yet another prison term of 19 years. Ouch. In a... Like, the very in the very strict kind of penal colony. Uh, I know for Americans it may not sound uh, so dreadful because you have prison terms uh, of hundred years. Mm -hmm. But believe mm -hmm. me, a Russian prison can be much harsher than American one. Um, so this trial was absurd from the beginning because uh, the very reason for it was very contrived. Uh, he was accused of offending a 94 or 95 years old veteran of the Second World War, uh, who used to be a partisan in his years. He, 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 uh, he was so, put in jail for insulting somebody? Uh, no, he was at that time he was sentenced to a really big fine. Okay. But he was put in, in jail for something else, which was very much contrived as well, for some economical crimes, uh, allegedly, which uh, he allegedly committed. Sure. But that's, that did not look very convincing. So they needed something more convincing to prove that he's such a bad man, such an awful person. Mm -hmm. uh, so they invented this case with a veteran who actually took, took part in a presidential campaign of Putin. He was on some video with uh, uh, several other celebrities. Okay, the veteran was not celebrity, but there were some celebrities in that right. video who were like, campaigning for Putin. And uh, Navalny commented on it. Uh, on his Twitter, and <laughs> nobody really reads Twitter in Russia. It's not very popular. Uh -huh. But uh, you know, the secret services apparently did read his Twitter, and uh, he wrote something like, oh, just look at them. What are they doing there? So it was not even an offense. He didn't use uh, offensive language. But uh, they used it as a pretext uh, to begin the trial against him as soon as he landed uh, after, uh, in Moscow after his return in uh, after his return into Russia from Germany, right. after he was nearly poisoned in Russia, but doctors and medicine saved his life. I don't. I see that it's a very wrong introduction, but. <laughs> Mm. Other, otherwise, it would seem confusing to the listeners as much as it seemed to you when you were reading the play. So he was uh, tried for this absurd, absurd, very absurd alleged crime. And uh, he's a very witty man, 
he's a lawyer by, by his background. And uh, at that time, he was very ill and nobody knew that. At that moment, he had some problem with his spine mm -hmm. and they didn't allow doctors in, into his prison and they didn't allow any medicines. So he, he was suffering from that, but he didn't disclose it. So he was very irritable at the time of that trial. Sure. And, yeah. and that's why there were a lot of very absurd uh, dialogues during uh, these court proceedings between him, and, uh, between the defendant Alexei Navalny and uh, the prosecutor and the judge and, and all the witnesses. So he was arguing with them a lot. And uh, he told them, uh, them in their faces that they were lying, that they were taking up the cause. They didn't not even know how to make the, up the cause properly. Uh, so that's over all uh, his real words. And afterwards, he was uh, put under trial again for offending the court <coughs> and uh, received another <coughs> prison term for that as well. Oh boy, seems like he couldn't do anything right. Yes, the, uh, well, actually, he could do one thing right, he could have stayed in Germany. Well, and, yeah. But at that didn't. time, who could have known that they will like imprison him for life? Maybe, because yeah. they keep extending and extending his prison term. So uh, that uh, sounded like a remedy at the time, in mm -hmm. fact. And I started writing down all these absurd uh, dialogues and arranging them into the play. So the first part of the play is almost a verbatim. Oh, That's uh, why there are so many characters in it. Uh, so many characters because I was just following what was going on in there. It's almost I, reporting. Yes, it's almost reporting. Because and but, having having read this play, I I read it several times just to because it kept drawing me back, and the characters just seem to start off silly and then become more and more absurd. And it seemed as if the absurdity just fed in upon itself. Um, characters not being who they were or uh, who they seemed to be. They would turn out to be someone completely different, someone not as powerful. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, you know, someone whose identity is is fake. And it seemed like everybody wanted to know if somebody else was naked in there. That phrase came up <laughs> more than a few times. And I found myself just by the end of this play, my head was spinning, but I, I did find it at the same time hilarious and yet very plausible and very scary. Oh, thank you. Well, you're uh, thank you for that observation. <laughs> and uh, I, I'm really happy that you found it plausible because um, the one thing uh, that puzzled me is why were they doing all those absurd things? Like everybody during that trial realized 
that it is a total absurd. Yeah. Of course, the judge and the prosecutor and all the witnesses, they uh, were making fools of themselves in front of the public because <laughs> there was uh, that online reporting. Everybody would know. So what was it doing it for? That's right. a question that uh, I asked myself and I couldn't um, find the answer. So I tried to invent the answer and tried to guess what could have been motivating these people to act in such an insane and cruel and absurd way. So they must have been having really good reasons, really strong reasons to do all that. And uh, so that's a question which uh, sadly gets more and more relevant every day. How yes. ordinary people uh, get complicit in the crimes of the government. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, like, yeah, this play was written before the war. And now I think I would never have written such a play because it does not feel like comedy anymore as too much yeah. blood have been shed too much ukrainian could... blood and russian blood and yeah. so it's more tragedies and comedy now and unfortunately it's, it's it's a terrible crime what's what's going on over there right now this this whole war is i believe unnecessary in the first place and so many innocent people are suffering because of it could you get in any kind of jeopardy for having written this play? Mm, I don't think so. Well, you never know. As you probably have heard, uh, a theater director and a playwright uh, were put on trial recently for a documentary play about uh, women who went to Syria to marry this Islamic State uh, fighters. Sure. Uh, He he, he went there to become their wives. Uh, They met them online. And uh, when they had to return to Russia, they were put on trial and sent to prison for being complicit in terrorism. Oh, boy. Uh, So the playwright... Uh, apparently got puzzled and asked herself how did those women come to this and uh, the play was based for on interviews with uh, with uh, a lot of real women who yeah. went to Syria but the funny thing is the funny and the scary thing is that this play received a state prize for theater for for the best play for the best directing i i don't remember but uh, it received se- several nominations yes. received the, the state award called golden mask in several nominations <sighs> so and now they are in prison for that so you never know oh, boy. <laughs> well, I... in the future <laughs> Yeah, it's it's hard to know what's 
somebody's going to be offended at. I, I know that freedom of speech is, is tenuous at best in most places, and it's very tricky. Yes, uh, but I'm against self-censorship because uh, I do believe that self-censorship um, leads to many awful things. I agree uh, with you. We should not be uh, afraid without reason, because without a real reason. Of course, I would not go out on the Red Square mm -hmm. with a sign <laughs> saying stop the war because uh, I will be arrested for it in two minutes. Yes. But, uh, there are, there are other a... smarter ways to express yourself. Yeah, yeah. I think writing play is it's not the most dangerous thing to do. Yeah. But this the very surprising thing to me is the fact that people in America got interested into that. That is several people at the residency in McDowell, wherever. Yes, yeah. They have read it, and I received positive comments from a few other residents. And then I sent it to PDX Playwrights, uh, which is an association of playwrights in Portland, Oregon, and they stage public readings regularly every, mm -hmm. every month, I think, or even right. yeah. more frequently. So they also liked it, and there was a public reading in I Portland. wanted to ask you about that. What, what was the audience response to this play? Uh, because I, I definitely want to ask you about being a Russian and writing a play and having it in front of a U.S. audience because the sensibilities are so different. Okay, you and I we can we can talk about a hundred things, and each you know you and I will see things a little bit differently. Our senses of humor are a little bit differently. Our political views, our, our views about the general public, about society and culture, they differ. Um, so when this was presented as an absurdist comedy, which is it's what I'm calling it, uh, what, was the, what was the reaction from the audiences in Portland? I was surprised uh, by their reaction because they were getting the jokes, and uh, in fact, the reaction was very positive. There were not uh, too many people, and there were also some Russian speakers in the audience, mm -hmm. including um, a director of um, a Russian-speaking theater there, which is called Full House, and she also liked that play. And as far as I know, they're going to have a reading in Russian. <laughs> so I was the same play, also wow. in Portland, Oregon, <laughs> because there's a huge Russian-speaking community of ethnic Russians on, and ethnic Ukrainians as well. And there are three community theaters which produce plays in Russia, and there, mm. which is really interesting. Okay. And uh, so, and but even American audience uh, seemed to get the humor. And I think that's because 
absurd is universal. Like when you see that something is absurd, that's obvious. Sure, yeah. Uh, they, they asked a lot of questions and uh, they also thought, like you did, that it was a satire. So they were surprised to know that they were actual uh, moments of the real court proceedings. That's uh, difficult to believe if you have not lived in Russia for a while. Yeah, yeah, but satire is so based in truth that a good satirist, a good satirical writer can just almost, as you say, take it verbatim and show how ridiculous it can be because we humans, we we are so good at not being sensical and making fools of ourselves and being contradictory that in some senses, satire is almost too easy. That's true. Unfortunately, that's very true in Russia. Uh, and um, documentary theater is developing very fast in Russia, or at least it was uh, before the war, because now a lot of people I had to move out of the country, uh, including uh, the theater director, Alexander Chernousov, whom I know uh, from, from Russia. And yeah. he uh, also took part in this production in Portland, Oregon, uh, in the role of the defendant. So of Navalny himself. And okay. uh, he gave a brilliant performance. Um, I should say, so he used to do documentary performances in Russia, but now he's continuing this in Portland, Oregon. Which, uh, but he has, has uh, he had to leave because of the war, and also many other directors and actors are now working all over Europe and yeah. the United States of America, uh, which is probably a good thing for global theater for, for international yes. theater, but not for the Russian one. No, uh, so. no. The, the Russian theater is obviously suffering. Um, yeah. But suffering. it's also hard on, on the expatriates, too, on the expats who have to leave their country and find a way to to start all over and to support themselves as an artist in a different country. It's such a shame that has to happen in the first place, but it's so difficult to manage having to leave your home. Yeah, that's very true. But uh, in comparison with the flag of the millions of Ukrainians, uh, sure, it feels yeah. almost immoral to complain about that. But of course, those people who had to leave Russia, they are not very welcome in Europe or wherever they have gone, many have gone to Georgia or Armenia or Kazakhstan, all the nearby countries. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, they, uh, often uh, they can't go back and it's difficult for them to integrate uh, into the new countries. Yeah. So it's, yeah, it's, it's very complicated. But uh, for some, especially for artists, for uh, for artists, uh, this this could be a chance to really boost their international career, because 
they didn't uh, think about immigration before, and they had good career inside Russia. But now they had to leave uh, some on moral grounds, some yeah. because uh, they, they could be per persecuted as activists. Right. And now they are starting their careers and uh, they are still doing art and they get exhibitions or they work in the theater, theater artists. So they are integrating. They are not out us, which True. is a good sign to me. Yeah, it is a good sign. But again, at what cost? It would be nice if your own country could support you. But when it's dangerous to say what you actually think, then, yeah, it makes a lot more sense to go someplace else where your work and your life can be not just tolerated, but appreciated and encouraged. It's uh, it's a phenomenon that's starting to happen more and more now in the United States. Uh, there are organizations of, of people who feel that it is better to prevent people from reading certain books or speaking out about certain things, uh, political and social, and to repress the rights of people who need medical care because of their own beliefs. And normally we can find a way to get around this in the States, but it's becoming harder and harder because more people in power are becoming much less tolerant of the diverse population that, you know, so the United States is not the bastion of freedom that the, all the brochures tell us. So I think we're heading down the same road towards the same kind of trouble. Oh, I think it is a very dangerous trend. And I hope you are not repeating the mistakes that my country has made. Because yeah. freedom of speech is essential. It's, uh, if you give up on that, then you will gradually lose everything else, all the other freedoms. So this one is that you should guard and protect as, as hard as you can. Because, uh, you know, uh, you should, the right to speak up is essential. And uh, this yeah. this also worries me because uh, currently, for instance, I have a play which cannot be produced in Russia because there is a law that you should not uh, uh, do any propaganda as it is called of a non-traditional relationship, meaning sexual relationship, sure, meaning yeah. LGBTQ. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So. Uh, essentially, you don't have the right to depict uh, LGBTQ characters in, or, or in the theater, on the stage. You, yeah. you cannot put them on the stage. And I have a play uh, which features uh, two gay characters. But the funny thing is uh, that it's impossible to produce it in the United States as well, or so I suspect, 
because uh, those characters are not depicted as victims or as activists or as people who are fighting for LGBT, LGBTQ rights. Uh, they are quite controversial. And also. I'm afraid that in America, uh, the director mm. uh, should be very brave to produce a play like that. Why are they because, controversial? They are controversial because uh, they are not um, totally 100% good people. Okay. Because uh, gay people, like all other people, can be good and can be bad, or they yes. can have dif different sides, mm -hmm. a little bit of that and that. There's no black and white in life. So uh, they, some of the things they do are not really good. Yeah, that, uh, and that sounds to me like a very interesting play. Because oh, I, no, I, I, I should I, attempt to like translate it. I want to yes, I want to talk to you about that. In in in, well, let's just go to that now. Um, translating a play from Russian into English. I wonder about first of all because we have different ways of looking at the same things. One is a Russian way of looking at it. One is one is an American way of looking at it. And hey, terrific. Um, but when you want to translate the Russian words and the Russian sensibilities and the Russian points of view into English, into American, how complicated does that get? I'm, I'm, I'm assuming that so many things are common between us. That would be ridiculous to not assume that. But the specific points of view, how do you make an American understand a Russian point of view using the words because it's hard enough to get the right words into the text in the first place. I mean, I know as a playwright, I spend hours sometimes finding the right word, okay? To, to communicate the right sentiment, the right feeling, the right directive. But when you have to translate that, do the words sometimes not match up? Is it, what's the difficulty with something like that? Well, I think the difference in our approaches is that um, you are a playwright and you think uh, as a playwright. And um, I am, uh, in addition to being a playwright, I'm also a journalist and an editor and a translator. Uh, and that uh, was my actually first occupation. I came to write in plays rather late in life at 40. And actually, my very first job was to translate a book from English into Russian. Uh, that's what I did at the age of 15. It was a, a novel. Wow. So I've been uh, translating back and, for and forth uh, for my entire life because uh, 
when I worked at the art newspaper Russia, I used to translate from English into Russian a lot. And sometimes I had to do it very quickly. Like I had uh, maybe an hour or two to do that, to translate a rather long article. Because in journalism, you sometimes have to act very quickly. And uh, now I'm working for an English-speaking publication on art, which is called Art Focus Now. And for that, I translate a lot from Russian into English. So in journalism, you don't always have the time to like sit and think uh, and pick the right word. Sure, yeah. Yeah, because there is a deadline. Yes. There's always a deadline. Um, so for me, it's like an everyday activity. I don't like, put that much thought into it. And <laughs> I don't know if it helps. Maybe uh, my translations are not uh, really yeah, that clear for Americans. I don't know. Well, so you've been doing this for a very long time, so I'm sure that your expertise in translating from one to the next, especially for something in a journalistic faction which relies on facts and relies less on manipulating the emotions of an audience as it is to translating information, I'm sure it's probably spot on most of the time. Well, normally I translate um, texts on contemporary art, mm -hmm. and those texts uh, can be really complex uh, with all those long sentences and strange uh, terms and all sure, sorts yeah. of things. So normally they are more complicated than my plays because I write for the stage. They are meant to be read aloud to be pronounced. So uh, I find it much more easier to translate a play than an article. And of course, artificial intelligence helps us a lot because now... Oh, there's uh, a subject there are, that's, that's very yeah, touchy. Yeah. Yes, of course, of course. But it, it's a helpful tool. It's helpful anyway. There are translation tools now online uh, which are free to use mm -hmm. and they're doing quite a good job but of course you have to edit um, uh, you don't trust them i don't trust artificial oh, no, no. Yeah. <laughs> i wouldn't trust them too much either but i think they get a lot of the initial work done yes yes and they make translation a lot faster and they are absolutely much better with the articles than I am, because for a Russian speaker, articles are an inscrutable thing. We don't have them in our language. We do very well without them. So <laughs> it's always difficult for, to decide which yeah. one to use, or maybe sometimes you don't need them at all. It's difficult, but it for difficult, artificial yeah. intelligence, it's quite easy. Okay, well, that's that's going to be a discussion for another day, I think, because we could go on with artificial intelligence, which frankly scares the heck out of me. Um, 
I'm not sure I want the machines to have that much control or to be moving into the realm that I feel I should, as a human, be the only one in, which is creativity, which is art, which is, uh, yeah, it's once, once they start making art in lieu of humans, that's going to be well, scary. That's yeah, going to be very it's scary. scary indeed, but all the technology is scary at first. We know from history that when a cinema was invented, people were afraid that it will kill theater. And mm-hmm. when television was invented, uh, people were afraid that the films will die out and there will be no cinema because now we have television. No, and I think when, the only thing uh, that television computer, held was human intelligence. I think, yeah, yeah, but uh, well, I think it's all in the same uh, line because it's all technology. Yeah, just the yeah. next level of technology. And on one hand, it's scary uh, because some jobs uh, die out, like typists. Mm-hmm which was a, a, a very liberating and relatively easy job for women. Yes. Uh, in an era which was not really far from now. Well, but then to they, had, they had to learn to do something yeah. else. I think we seem to be bent they... on replacing humans with machines in so many areas. What are we going to do with all these humans that can no longer get a salary or no longer go to work how are they you know how are they going to support the economy and i'm using heavy air quotes here because i think more more and more jobs will pop up like it was with those ladies who worked on the typewriters Uh, uh, new jobs new professions emerged for them and i do believe there were more and more jobs in creative industries because more people uh, work at home and after a long day at work at their home they want to go out it's not like they were sitting in the office all day and they only want to get home it's now they have tv so they don't have to go out now they have youtube now they have zoom so they don't have to go out uh, they don't have to, but after you've been sitting in front of the screen the whole day, uh, you you something want to move to sure. yeah. change the scenery, like to to go somewhere. Because sitting around uh, in your apartment, twenty four hours a day can be stressful. Can be very stressful. <laughs> yes, yes, I know. as we all remember from the pandemic times. Oh boy! So, and yes. people have more and more leisure, more and more time. They don't waste their time in traffic or in public transportation, and they will use this time for entertainment. So, I think entertainment industry will have a big boom and there will be more and more new professions we, which we cannot even imagine now, like uh, with all this VR thing, which mm-hmm. may be uh, developing or it uh, 
my die out will replace everybody's reality yes but i'm not that sure yeah maybe it will evolve into something else or integrate into something else and there are all tools that we can experiment with and we can integrate in our own work for instance i have written another play uh, which i would like to be uh, staged as an immersive performance so Mm. The readers, uh, no, I'm always talking about the readers because I'm in a writing class now, which is a separate story. Okay. But uh, I mean, uh, the spectators are invited to take part in the performance by taking photos and videos. Because normally a spectator has to sit in the dark for two hours watching a performance which they don't even necessarily understand or can relate to because it can be something really experimental uh, or something telling them about uh, problems and issues that have nothing to do with their own. And they cannot even make a single photo for their Instagram like they are used to, like they do uh-huh. everywhere where they go. So I always feel pity for the spectators who've paid a lot of money and spent a lot of time and they have to sit at the performance and they might like it. But that's what people have been doing for 5,000 years. They've been paying their money and they go sit while somebody else entertains them. That's true. But at that time, there was no Instagram. They no, could write a, a letter to their friends uh, telling them how exciting the performance was or how shitty the performance was. But now it would not work. You have to post a photo. If you <laughs> just post a paragraph uh, of text, nobody will read it. Well, to be, uh, to be perfectly fair, people used to shout back at Shakespeare that his performances... And yes. in there's there's been a lot of art that is immersive. I, one of the more famous, at least in the United States, has been the, the phenomenon of Rocky Horror, where people go every week, they know the words, they recite things, they yell things back at the characters on screen, and it becomes a sociological gathering of like-minded people who are just making a whole new art form out of something else. So, yeah, maybe, you know, it's, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping you're right. I'm hoping your optimism is correct about the adaptability of humans to adjust to the scientific and sociological changes that are affecting the artistic world. Uh, We've we've done it up until now, and and I'm assuming we're going to keep doing it somehow. But trying to read the future—that's where the real artistic imagination comes in. Trying to figure out what the future is going to look like—that's true. And the good thing that you can do it eternally. Yes, because, because there are so many possibilities. You cannot stop imagination. 
Katarina, this has been so much fun talking to you. I wish we could go out for another couple of hours. It's been lovely speaking with you. Oh, thank you. Hey kids, thanks for listening to On Stage, Off Stage. On Stage, Off Stage is produced monthly and all of our shows can be found at onstageoffstage.org and also on Podbean, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeart, and Google Podcasts. If you enjoy what we do, please recommend us to your friends. Don't forget to like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at OnOffStage. And if you are a theater artist with an upcoming project or interest or know of someone in the theater world who'd make good chat, by all means, send us a note at onstageoffstagepodcast at gmail.com. Our theme music is Don't Worry, Be Frappy by the composer Max Dickinson. You can find a lot more of Max's magnificent music on SoundCloud. I'm George Sapio. Thanks once again for listening, and please... Be kind to those with whom we share this rock. And as always, happy theatering to all of you.